Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, everybody, um, and welcome here to this uh, Grattan Institute event. My name is Joanna Mather. I write for the Australian Financial Review, mostly about tax. Um, we're here to talk about traffic, congestion, more to the point. Um, I've just moved back to Sydney from Canberra. In Canberra, my commute was 11 minutes from free underground park to free underground car park. People have a little, uh, it's been a bit harder in Sydney. Um, but we're here and we're going to talk uh, with uh, Marion Terrell, who's from the Grattan Institute. She's done some analysis on, on what congestion looks like in Sydney and Melbourne. And one of her recommendations was that we should have some congestion charging. And while you obviously, you probably all think that your commute to work is terrible, apparently the average commute at the busiest time of day takes around three minutes longer than the same trip in the middle of the night. Hard to believe. Um, but uh, so, so please welcome Marianne. I'll tell you a little bit about her. Um, she is the Transport Program Director at the Grattan Institute and author of the report that we're going to talk about called Stuck in Traffic, Road Congestion in Sydney and Melbourne. Her previous publications have focused on government, infrastructure, investment, cost overruns on transport infrastructure and value capture. Before joining Grattan, Marion had extensive experience in public policy, ranging from authoring parts of the 2010 Henry Tax Review to leading the design and development of the MyGov account. We're also joined here by Owen Hayford, who's a partner um, with PwC Legal, specialising in infrastructure. Um, he has provided uh, advice to participants, including government sponsors, contractors, operators, investors, and debt financiers. He is an acknowledged thought leader on uh, public-private partnerships and the infrastructure sector. And also Brian Willey, who is currently uh, Director of Road Transport Strategy in Transport for New South Wales. He has a background that includes um, buses, road network planning, performance measurement, and multimodal transport planning in London. Um, he has advised on the development of mass transit systems and led the establishment of public transport and infrastructure projects. So we're just gonna kick off with Marion telling us a little bit about what her research found. So th thanks very much, Joanna, and thank you everyone for coming along tonight. Um, I feel like congestion is one of those bugbears of life and um, we love to complain about it and we're, I guess we're all here because we care about it one way or another. What I thought I would do is just spend about five minutes telling you some of the findings um, that I, I published a fortnight ago today actually on congestion. And, and uh, some of the findings are, were what I expected and some of them not so much. The, the backdrop to this though is kind of what do we even mean by road congestion? And, and the answer to that is not actually particularly obvious. Um, we, we complain about it, I think, because um, partly because we've had a lot of population growth in a short space of time. And so Sydney has grown by 20% in a decade and the pace of population growth is actually speeding up. So I think in the past five years, it was 1.76% a year. The last year, 1.86, which might not sound like a lot, but 
it's compounding and it really is. So we can remember, it's easy to remember it when there just weren't as many people competing for the same space. So that's one reason that we care. And the other is that our cities are very car dependent. So in Sydney, Sydney has got the biggest mode share of public transport of any Australian city, but only 25% of journeys to work are by public transport. So most people, most of the time, are getting around by car. So in thinking about um, what, what, what is it that we're worrying about, um, the, the main way we think about it is as motorists, and the things that we care about are how long is it going to take and how reliable is that going to be. And so I'm sure Brian will talk more about this, um, but as an economist, I also care about how costly it is. So the delays that we all contribute to by joining the traffic all add up and that's costly. Um, but in, in terms of the physical capacity of the roads, I don't think we're there yet. Uh, it's very rare for roads to actually break down in gridlock and certainly not on a regular basis, even on quite bad routes. So here, I'll, I'll set the scene a bit by just a few of the key findings that we had. So firstly, we looked at Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane and we used Google Maps data. Um, we picked a, a bundle of over 350 trips and we collected trip time estimates 25 times a day for six months. So it ended up with millions of observations, three and a half million. And, and what we found is Sydney and Melbourne are very alike and Brisbane is quite different. So Brisbane's about half the size of Melbourne. So so what, what I conclude from that is it, it makes sense to look at Sydney compared to Melbourne, but not Sydney compared to any other Australian city. But Sydney and Melbourne are remarkably alike. So both have their peaks at pretty much the same hour of the morning and the afternoon, and they tail off in the middle of the day to a very similar extent. If anything, Melbourne seems to be a little bit worse in terms of its delays and a little bit worse in terms of its reliability which I think is very interesting for Sydney and perhaps um, an opportunity for Brian to congratulate the government, I'm not sure. Um, so that, that was one important thing though. Um, but to get a bit more specific, um, so Joanna just referred to how small the delays are. So, it, uh, and this was the most surprising thing to me. If you think about people's journeys to work, most people, um, their trip takes less than five minutes extra in the morning peak compared to in the middle of the night. And I thought, how could this be? It, it seems so implausible. But the, it, it seems to be right, and that's because um, most people work in a suburb very close to where they live. Um, and so that is why most people travel to work by car. And once you're doing, so very few people work in the CBD, it's about 14%. Um, other employment centres are just not that big. So the CBD is the most important employment centre and then there's really daylight for other employment centres. But the great majority of people are dispersed among sort of shopping centres and schools and health clinics and businesses all over the city. And, and they live near where they work and that's why those delays are really not affecting most people most of the time. Of course, they are affecting some people a lot. So some people, but it's very unusual for um, trips other than to the CBD to be delayed by more than about 15 minutes. Once you look at people going into the CBD, the delays are longer. There's an average delay of 11 minutes for a CBD commute in the morning compared to in the middle of the night. So that is still not a huge delay, 
Um, but I think probably what's more problematic for people is that the reliability um, can, it can vary a lot. In a given week, it can vary significantly. So just to give you a few examples to, to bring that to life, if you're going from Cremorne to the CBD, it'll take you 120% more than in the middle of the night. So in the middle of the night, it would take you seven and a half minutes. It'll take you 17 on an average day. But in, in any given week, one day it'll be 12, one day it'll be 19 and a half. If you're going from Ashfield, um, it's 10 and a half minutes in free flow, on average 22, but it could be 11 and a half and it could be 26 in one week. So there lots of examples like that that show that variability is a real issue for people, even if the average is not that bad. We looked a little bit at causes. Um, it's not surprising that um, if you are in a suburb without rail, you'll probably be driving. But um, the other interesting challenge that you have in Sydney is the harbour, quite hard to manoeuvre around. So the number of bridge crossings you have is a big factor in how much um, delay you're likely to experience. So Dremoyne and Balgala have got two bridges and no rail, and they are pretty bad commutes, actually. Um, Willoughby East and Mosman are quite delayed, one bridge, no rail. So that that's a factor which is a little bit hard to change, but it, it, it helps to make sense of what's going on. The final cause I thought I'd mention is weather. So lots of people in Sydney said to me, it's terrible. Once it rains, it's terrible. So we looked at the wettest week in this six month period, which was in um, the week leading up to the June long weekend. And it, there was heavy rainfall on the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. And I don't know if this is typical, but in this very wet week, we saw no difference in congestion to any other week. There is a bit of natural variation from one week to another, but in fact, in one of the biggest downpours, travel times were actually less delayed than average. So I found that very surprising, but it's, we, we found no evidence that um, torrential downpours made much difference. So that's a bit of a, a brief overview of what congestion looked like in Sydney between March and September this year. Bad for some trips, but overall surprisingly modest. Not everybody agrees that congestion charging is the way to go. But nevertheless, let, let's just hear from Owen on what on what what it might what road pricing might look like. You've done some work on that, yes? Yeah. Oh, there we go. It is working. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, so my interest in this topic come out of one of Marion's recommendations, and that was that Sydney ought to look at congestion charging as a way of managing this issue. Um, and um, road user charging is something that I've been interested in for quite a period of time. Um, uh, I think w one of the key issues, well, uh, yeah, I'm interested in it from two perspectives. One is um, our, our road funding model at the moment is suboptimal, um, it's unfair, um, and uh, it's dying because it relies on fuel excise. Uh, cars are becoming more efficient, um, fuel excise is falling, um, 
we're going to end up with um, lots of electric cars that don't use any fuel, they don't make any contribution, and um, um, there are there are better ways of raising and fairer ways of raising the revenue that we need to support our road network. So part of it might be about the funding model, but the other part is about, you know, it could be a really useful tool for managing demand. Everyone gets that, but also for managing supply, and I'll come to that. Um, but I think if we're going to have this conversation about road user charging or congestion charging, um, we need to get clear in our heads what the main objective of it is. Is it about a better funding model or is it is the primary purpose about managing congestion? Now Marion's report says it's about managing congestion and um, Infrastructure Victoria share that view. Um, but if you have a look at the speech that the Federal Minister for Urban Infrastructure gave at the Sydney Institute quite recently, you can download it off the web. If you're interested in this topic, I suggest you take a look at it because it's, it's a really uh, good speech because there's a lot of detail in there. Um, he thinks the primary purpose of this is about a better, a better road funding model. And just to be clear too, he's not saying it's a way of raising more funds. He's saying, no, no, the total take would be the same. Um, it's about raising that, those funds more fairly um, and more efficiently. And he then says, so, you know, the benefit that you get out of it in terms of managing congestion, oh, that's incidental and secondary benefit. So um, I think we need to get clear around that because depending on what your primary objective is, that will really shape how you've formed this, formed this up. Um, my personal view is that congestion management resonates a whole lot better with uh, the public than the funding objective. Everyone sort of thinks, oh, well, government's got plenty of sources of funding. We don't need to fix that. Um, uh, so I think it's a measure that's likely to, more likely to get public support if it's about, um, about congestion management. You know, people see and understand that problem. They, just, they don't see and understand the, the funding problem. Um, so you've got that primary question and then there's, there's two other questions about what this might look like here in Sydney. Um, the first question is what roads should it apply to? And the second is what form might the funding, sorry, might the pricing mechanism take? Now in relation to the first question, what roads should it apply to? There's three basic options that I think make sense in Sydney. You could either um, impose charges on entry into a particular area, like the CBD. Or you could look at our key arterial roads, like the orbital network, much of which is presently charged. Um, or you could impose these charges across the entire network. Um, and then a, a variant of the second option with key arterial roads is or oh, maybe express lanes on certain roads. And I think that might make sense, say, um, the road to the airport. You know, if you're trying to catch a flight and you're in travelling at the same speed as everyone else, you might be prepared to pay a premium to get a guaranteed um, express 
journey to the airport so you can catch your plane and not suffer all the costs associated with that. Um, so that's the area. And then the second thing is, well, what form might the pricing mechanism take? And again, there's three basic options here if we're talking about cars and other light vehicles. Uh, the first is distance-based tolling, where you're charged a function of how many kilometres uh, you travel. Uh, we have that on the M7 at the moment. Uh, the second is time-based tolling, where the charges change depending on the time of day, similar to what we have on the bridge in the tunnel. Um, and in Melbourne, the East Link toll road, there they charge 20% less on weekends than what they charge during the week. And then the third is um, dynamic pricing, where the price changes depending on the actual demand for the road at the relevant time. And so as the road becomes more congested, the charge would increase until demand and hence congestion falls to a desired level, maybe you know, a level that enabled desired travel times on that road to be achieved. Um, and conversely, at times of low demand, price would, you've got lots of underutilised capacity, price would fall until the demand comes back up. Um, and then for heavy vehicles, another variant is, is mass as well, because heavy vehicles cause more damage to uh, the road than lighter vehicles. Um, now, returning to our primary purpose, I think, you know, if, if the primary purpose is about managing congestion, then I think a regime that only applied to congested roads um, with prices that respond to actual demand or congestion at the relevant time would make more sense. Um, but if your primary purpose is about a fairer, more efficient funding model uh, that seeks to recover the incremental costs that each road user is imposing on the network, then something that applies to the entire network and is based on distance and mass would make a lot more sense. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to touch on at the start was about the supply side. Um, another reason why I think this is a conversation we need to keep having um, is that we can, we can do much better on the supply side by making better decisions about where we spend our road funding. I mean, congestion occurs when there's insufficient road capacity to meet demand. And you've got two basic problems, two basic solutions to that problem. Um, you either reduce demand during the peak period, just been talking about that, or you increase supply, you put more road capacity in the locations where it's most needed, where there's excess demand. And I think, you know, despite the best efforts of people like Brian and bureaucrats at Transport for New South Wales to direct road funding where it's most needed, uh, the politics can result in road funding being spent on roads um, that are popular with voters in marginal electorates rather than supplying additional road capacity where it's most needed. And I think if, you know, if, if here's a, I'll throw this one out there, this will get you thinking. If, if, if responsibility for deciding how road funding was, um, how it's spent, was taken off government road authorities, 
and instead given to private sector uh, road network managers who are given an area of the road network to manage and look after and, and, and develop, uh, those private sector road network managers, they would invest the funds that they have available um, into capacity enhancements and maintenance activities that are going to maximise the return for their shareholders. Right. Um, put another way, that private sector road network manager would be financially motivated to invest the funds available in those parts of the network where there is the most demand for additional network capacity. Yeah, and the politics would be taken out of these decisions and we could address the supply side of this congestion equation much more effectively. Excellent. Um, do we have enough technology to do all of those things? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Right. You know, we've all got tags and whatnot in our cars and we travel on uh, certain roads that are told. The M7's a good example. You know, as you go along, it works out how far you've been and sends you a bill. No problem. The technology's there. Brian is in charge of all of our commutes, so we're going to hear from him about what keeps him up at night. I'm not sure about in charge, but thank you, Joanna. <coughs> uh, I just wanted to, to talk about two points, really, just to to add to the discussion and a bit of context, really. So um, Sydney, Sydney is no different to uh, any other Australian or New Zealand cities. Um, we have traditionally low densities. Um, we have a quite large geographic areas in our cities, um, which is a challenge for, for people in, in transport for New South Wales to provide high quality public transport because really density drives quality public transport. Um, for those that can see the what we call global clock behind us, if you imagine a clock um, with increasing city sizes around the world, um, with Berlin being 3.5 million people, Sydney currently is 5 million people. In the next 40 years, we will be 8 million people. That's 3 million people coming to Sydney. That's that's two times the size of Adelaide. Um, and then we end up with the big big mega cities at 12 o'clock, which is um, at Tokyo at 14 million. Um, if you look at those various cities, and Sydney will be about the same size as either, depends how we cut it, San Francisco, including the whole Bays area, which is about 7.7 .7 million people, or about the equivalent size of London or New York, which is the five borough areas um, today. So we are going to be a small mega city, um, yet our densities will remain relatively low. So we have a big challenge ahead of us. We want to maintain our livability. Australian cities are traditionally very high in the livability rankings, something we're all very proud of. At the same time, a city like Sydney is a global city and we're in competition with other cities around the world um, for finance, for economy, for businesses to come here. And there's proof that agglomeration or higher densities actually drive economic development. So we all know that following the, the um, I suppose, downturn in the mining sector, um, Sydney really has been played a key role in the Australian economy to, to, to drive things forward. So the question we pose as planners is what sort of city do we want to be? Um, 
The other part of the story here behind me in the global clock is the size of the blue segment. So if you look at the blue segments, that's the car mode share for cities around the world. And as I said, Australian cities are relatively low in density and we have relatively high car mode shares. Um, if we think about cities like London or New York, relatively low car mode shares in comparison. A city like Los Angeles, which is a, quite a mega city, has a very high car um, ownership. So what sort of city do we want to be? Um, it's as much a land use story and what the population will accept as anything else, but that very much influences the congestion debate. So the, oh, so the does the quality and the cost of public transport play into those, for example, London, New York? Uh, absolutely, we're here to talk about car congestion, but it, it is a big factor in what we can provide as a government. Um, with greater distances and smaller populations, um, there's a higher level of subsidy that government would have to pay towards public transport. Um, denser cities can put public transport in and get a higher return. Um, transport for London, for example, in two years' time needs to be cost neutral. So the tube, they need to fund themselves. The buses, they need to fund themselves. Um, that's a challenge for a city like London. And for Sydney, there's a, there's a huge amount of government subsidy that goes into public transport at the moment. Government is very happy to do that but there is a limit on what we can afford as a population. So the other point I, I just wanted to add to the discussion was um, I was in Marion's uh, position about 12 months ago as a project manager for our Osroads congestion review. Osroads are the um, peak authority for the road authorities around Australia and New Zealand. Um, we did a, a study of congestion on the busier roads um, around Australia and New Zealand, and we looked at a congestion intervention framework. So a guidance for practitioners like myself and road authorities on what measures and what, what is available to us, what policy levers are available to improve congestion. We'll never um, bust congestion, but how can we manage it better? So it ranges from the supply side to the um, demand side. Um, building roads, reprioritizing um, roads to public transport, better walking and cycling, um, immediate interventions, so incident uh, response, improving incident responses, and we're doing quite a lot on that across, across Australia and New Zealand. If there's a weather, weather event, there's likely to more, be more um, crashes, so getting, getting on top of those is quite important for our commuters. Um, demand management, so the example I would give of that is we've done a lot of demand management in Sydney CBD um, and since we've started that um, campaign we've had an 11% reduction in car trips into the CBD and over the same period we've had a 9.5% increase in public transport usage so demand management is one of our key tools to improve that situation and then there's more my field which is the longer term planning which is making sure the land use is planned to ensure that we have employment and jobs close to where people live. So we reduce the demand to even travel. So, um, and to Marion's point too in her study, um, the average trip in Sydney um, during the weekday in a car is less than five kilometers. Most of our trips in cars are relatively short. Um, the number of people that drive across the city is relatively small. By demand management, do you mean, say, putting on extra buses for an event or some something as such? It, it could be. This is a prolonged um, uh, 
the demand management approach. So we've put extra buses in, we've rerouted buses, we've put extra services on, but at the same time, we've we've done advertising um, to encourage people to reroute, retime their journeys. We've also done a lot of work with employer groups, so to encourage them to to retime their trips, so that we can spread that peak or even encourage them to change mode. So it's a sort of multi-pronged approach. Um, part of it is actually increasing capacity, increasing services, but at the same time, um, looking at behaviours as well. So do we have any questions at this point? Uh, thank you. Um, Brian, you said part of your role is <clears throat> the longer term planning for New South Wales. Um, I don't want to um, divert the conversation from where it's already going, um, but autonomous vehicles are a technology which is on the medium term horizon, um, which potentially could have an impact into the future. Have New South Wales thought more about what they could potentially do with regards to planning in the longer term? Uh, yes, but we probably take up the uh, entire session. Um, there's, there's opportunities, absolutely. There's opportunities with not just the road network and better utilization. There's opportunities with land use and particularly when we think about um, the need not to park vehicles. So what do we do with our parking stations? Can we convert those to better use? Um, and really what's driving our thinking is livability. How can we improve the livability of our cities and how can connected automated vehicles um, encourage and promote that? Um, but there are challenges and I think there's still a lot for the industry to, to learn and understand the pros and the cons and also what government's role is in regulation. Do we take a light touch? Do we take a, a, a heavier approach? I think we're, we're still thinking about it definitely, but we haven't really got a position. Yeah, I've got a perspective on that as well. Um, so, um, you know, there's a view that as aut more autonomous vehicles come to the market over time, um, uh, you and I and mums and dads that presently own cars um, uh, will cease to or will stop buying cars and will instead start buying journeys, um, dialing up a car when we need it, hopping in, driverless car takes us where we need to go um, and we, we pay for the journey and we get out and we avoid the costs of running cars. Um, at the moment, you know, road charges where they are imposed, they're, they're levied on um, the owner of the vehicle. Um, I think um, by the time we eventually get around to road user charging, if we ever get there, the politics is fraught. No minister wants to say, I'm going to introduce road user charging as a means of managing congestion, not before the next election, that's somebody else's job afterwards. Um, but I think in due course, as, as the public becomes better informed about what they're presently paying to use the roads and the unfairness in that system, and how it could be made better, eventually um, a political champion will come out for this. But that's a few years away, I believe. And by that point, I think, um, you know, the days of all of us owning a vehicle will be more or less over. Um, uh, the politics of imposing additional road user charges on mums and dads and vehicle owners will be gone. Um, instead, you know, uh, these fleet owners who are providing these journeys and making money out of the use of our public roads for which they pay no more than the rest of us, 
um, uh, I, I think what will happen is they'll be the ones paying the road user charge to the public authority or the private network manager that operates the network and that'll just be a cost like all the other costs that are embodied in the journey charge that they impose on the mum and well the, 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 the user of the vehicle um, and I think so I think autonomous vehicles could be a bit of a game changer in terms of bringing about you know um, uh, price signals to help manage congestion um, and a fairer more effective model for funding our our road network going forward. And Marion, I mean, I think speaking of uh, things being politically unpalatable, I think you did think that maybe, you know, some of the, the, the money could be fed back into, say, lower rego costs and things like that. Do you want to talk us through some of your findings around that? Yeah, so I think, so I, I think it is very politically difficult, but um, there are a set of pressures that... Um, that support the idea of road user charging and, and I think Owen's um, done a great job of explaining those. But um, if you if you are going to make an argument that this is a, um, a different way of paying for using the roads rather than an additional way, then it makes a lot of sense in my mind that you would um, reduce, for example, the vehicle registration, so a fixed fee of, um, of ownership, which is... Um, doesn't matter if you drive not at all or if you drive every single day you pay the same rego so that is one thing um, so uh, I, I think governments certainly the, the Commonwealth government worries about the decline in fuel excise and how to kind of get another uh, um, revenue base but I think um, partly making yeah charging differently for using vehicles um, is, is one way I think the other thing that people worry about a lot with road user charging is that they feel that it is um, it's unfair it's regressive that everybody is paying the same amount but some people who um, have lower incomes live further away and that it does make that very unfair so there's, there's a, a lot in that it's very complex but I, I guess I would say um, ploughing the money into genuine alternatives and substitutes is probably um, quite helpful to those people who can substitute, which I don't think is everyone, but um, it, it, there's a strong argument, I think, really, for putting revenue from road user charging into public transport at least, so that um, you increase the opportunity for, for some people to um, choose a, a different option if they can. We've seen insurance companies start to, you know, harness big data and, and give people discounts for, for changing certain behaviours. So presumably there's some scope there for that sort of thing. Any any, any other questions? Hi. Um, if you, if you, you might just want to say your name or and where you're from. Or. Um, my name is Veronique Lajoie. I used to be a GP until about a year ago when I retired and became a grandmother. Um, but my, the reason that I wanted to speak is that I've come here um, after sort of following WestConnex and I live in Balmain and there's going to be quite a bit of congestion in my area of the world and I was kind of surprised that you talked about livability when at Roselle School there's going to be an unfiltered um, exhaust tower and you've created a fair bit of congestion into my inner city now 
and the livability index. I'm pleased to hear that you count that. But um, it's not mentioned on your in, in your entire discussion that you've created a, a Sean says, is that supply of cars coming into the city? Um, I, I, I sort of feel that I'm not in a real discussion about Sydney congestion. Certainly. I, I think you didn't make the political decision to build uh, West Connects, but uh, I guess ha has pollution been, been on the agenda there? It's hard for me to say. It's, 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 I'm not involved in that project, but I will say that I live in Balmain as well. I'm a Balmain resident. So, you know, I value that area. Um, it is a very livable area now, and you know, I'm sure it's in no one's interest to, to degrade the livability of any suburbs in our city. I think Marion did sort of look at this point a little bit that you can't build your way out of congestion. Is that is that right? And in, in sort of, you know. Yeah, so I think um, it, it, it's a complex interaction and I think your question um, is suggesting that West Connects will bring more cars in but um, there's, I think there's another line of argument which is that it will take cars off smaller streets and put them onto bigger streets. Yeah, so um, yeah, we could talk a, a bit about toll roads. So I think, I mean, it, it is certainly if you think about um, a pricing regime, you do need to find a way to deal with the existing um, toll roads in Sydney, which are, um, you do have more toll roads in Sydney than we do in Melbourne. Um, and I can see that the, that it, you know, there are more on the horizon as well. So that is, that itself is a, a fraught issue. But um, I, I think the idea of, uh, as a city grows a lot, that the way that you make a city work, or one of the ways that you make cities work is um, so that they are not a series of disconnected villages, that you do need to have ways of connecting people. So I'm not an expert on the West Connects project particularly or, or in a position to talk about it in detail, but I mean, that is part of what you're doing unless you want all the, um, if, if you are to get the benefits of people being able to take advantage of a big and vibrant city, it does involve people being able to get around. Yeah. I think you, have you spoken to your local MP? They'll be helpful. <laughs> Another question over here. Hi, uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Dean. I'm with a company called GTA Consultants, and uh, th thank you for all your comments. Um, Marianne, just piggybacking on the on the back of your your research, um, it's more of a rhetorical comment, but um, you might be aware that over the past uh, six weeks or so, um, Uber has gone through a process of uh, basically releasing all of their spatiotemporal data, so um, at a much finer uh, grain level now, you can go and uh, evaluate sort of travel times for different times of the day, um, and it might be interesting to um, do a comparative um, type uh, research and and see if uh, what was reflected in Google Maps is also what's reflected um, in uh, the Uber movement data. So. It is so, uh, it, it's a really exciting time, I think, because there is a lot of data coming on stream that we couldn't have done what we did five years ago with the Google Maps. And um, we have looked a little bit at Uber data, but not in the last six weeks, um, I must admit. But um, it, the coverage issues are, like the advantage of, Google, of Uber is they're real trips taken by actual people. So they're not trip time estimates. 
I think the advantage of Google Maps is just the coverage. So they, they all bring their strengths to this, and I, I agree. I think it's it could be a great place to go next. That data too could really, I think, help on the investment decision side of things as well in terms of um, better informing those who are charged with making the decisions about where our road funding should be invested in the network. Hmm. Is that making your job easier or, or, or clearer? That is the use of technology and, and data? Uh, <coughs> yeah, we, we hold a lot of data ourselves from, from particularly public transport information. Um, but but we, um, we use Google data in our day-to-day -day management of the network as well as our long-term planning. So it's, it's, it's a really useful um, um, information to understand how our customers are moving around, volumes, um, travel times, um, it's, it's, a, it's a rich tapestry of information that's out there, you know, what time businesses are open. Um, so our challenge is to, to leverage into that so we can manage the road network a lot better. Um, but equally, we want to share the data we've got with, with private providers and you know, get that information out there so that we can give our customers better journeys as well. There's a gentleman just here in the in yeah. I'm Peter Tulip from the Reserve Bank. Um, I'm wondering what lessons are to be drawn from the experience of London, Stockholm, Singapore, and other cities with congestion pricing, and how would you design congestion taxes differently? Who would like to go first? <laughs> that. So, um, in terms of the the London experience, um, my understanding is um, you know that they had a very serious congestion problem um, the mayor at the time I think his name was Livingston um, uh, came out and said he was going to impose this congestion tax or congestion charge to alleviate that issue um, uh, at the time there was I think just enough support to get it through wasn't easy um, but he did it and um, shortly in, in the months that followed the level of public support for the scheme when people saw the difference that it was making um, uh, it garnered a lot of support and people now look at it as, as a success story um, Stockholm is the same, um, I believe. So you know, I think I think there are some good lessons there for our um, our political masters to take from this. That you know, it's not all uh, doom and gloom. If you can bring the public with you, that's the challenge. Um, uh, and I think, you know, that, that requires uh, a whole lot of education and that's where, you know, these sorts of events are important so that people get a better understanding as to um, what the issues are and what the options are that are available to us to manage these situations better. One, th one thing that was interesting with Stockholm was that they ran it as a trial and at the end of it asked people if they wanted it to continue and before they started... 70% were opposed and when they after the trial 70% were in favor 
and and I think it's because people um, paid a price, but they got something for it in terms of um, speed and reliability. Um, so they went. The researchers went back and asked people, "Why did you change your mind?" And people were saying, "I didn't change my mind. I always supported it." Transurban just did a study down in Victoria as well, and same sorts of outcomes. That the those who were involved in this study, where they had I don't know devices, and they were they didn't actually have to pay, but they had nominal charges, and they've been given information and, and whatnot. Um, uh, uh, the percentage who thought it was a better system um, uh, uh, climbed significantly between what it was at the start of the study and, and those in favour at the end. I don't know the exact figures, but... It, uh, so it can, it can work. Um, yes? Thanks. <coughs> My name's Jane Jury and I don't come from anywhere in particular. But um, I just wanted to make a couple of comments. Sorry, just wanted to make a couple of comments about what's been talked about tonight. And uh, I wasn't quite sure what to expect when I came to a session on road congestion, but I did expect to have an idea that road congestion was part of a transport concept rather than a road concept. And it does concern me that a lot of the discussion tonight has been as if roads exist in some kind of vacuum away from a system of public, sorry, of urban transport that one would imagine would be a sister, a mixture of uh, public and private, pr public transport and private car use. But that in an age of climate change, you know, the need for sustainability, the need to reduce our reliance on uh, resources and in particular on fuel, that would be thinking about a system that's about reducing the um, impacts of trans the transport system overall and not just looking at how to manage congestion by charging for it. And obviously um, there's a huge issue as um, this woman over here has raised around West, West Connects and the imposition of the toll on the M4 quite recently, which is a flat tax on people of Western Sydney in the main, who will be paying a toll for the next 40 years on that road, which will increase by 4% every year, based on nothing other than that that's what the government thinks they need to pay for the rest of the roads that they want to build to make West Connects successful in terms of finding investors to invest in building the roads. And that's their measure of success. So I guess what, you know, if I was to say, uh, you, sorry, I think it was Owen, you made the point that, well, let's hand over the management of congestion to private companies and it, then it will be driven by shareholders' profit. Well, I have to ask the question, what, is that, what has shareholders' profit got to do with the provision of public transport, of, of um, a transport system to a city? And my answer is very little, except that the government is, rather than, as, as um, Marion has said, that if we are going to charge people to use your roads or to thinking about using systems like the um, registration, et cetera, et cetera, to, to reflect the real cost of roads, that should include um, the pollution cost, the uh, long-term sustainability costs of having roads rather than public transport, et cetera, and that um, it should not reflect it should not be taking into account private profit. The roads, public transport should be a public good that's paid for by taxpayers 
as a resource for, for the use and the livability of a city rather than for people to make private profit out of. Yeah, okay. um, and I think the federal government is going to look at sort of road user pricing regime and, and, and this will be a great opportunity for all those issues to be canvassed. But I think, Marion, you did in your research look at, well, you know, could, could, could there be changes to the way public transport is priced, which would, you know, encourage people while you're looking at congestion management, encourage people to, to use public transport? So I did, and I think your your point is well made, and um, that if this is a a system and a network um, of which roads are a part for both public and private transport on roads, um, but rail is a really key part of this too. What what I looked at was really the public transport corollary of road user charging, which. Um, I have to say Sydney does this better than Melbourne. So in Melbourne, there's very little time of day variation and we have very um, sharp peaks uh, of train usage in peak hour. Um, here in Sydney, you do have much more time of day variation, but you've had an enormous increase, I think a 10% increase in patronage of heavy rail in the last year. So really um, very hard for a network to accommodate that. and. And part of, I think, how Sydney's done that is by um, differential pricing. The, the essential idea of it is that you encourage people to who can be flexible to take their trip in a quieter time of day. So, so I think there is scope for Sydney to do more, but there's scope for Melbourne to do a lot more. Any other questions? Hi, I'm Nick Hudson from Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. Um, you've uh, spent a, oh dear! <laughs> um, you spent a lot of time talking about sort of the future and the broader objectives of the of the ro of road, so bus congestion, um, and also about the funding model, which is which is broken. And I think Owen, oh, you sort of articulated where we'd like to see ourselves sort of in the future, where you have like a using price to direct uh, road investment and maintenance, almost like a has flavours of like a regulated utility model. But um, in order to get there, what do we have to do now? Um, you mentioned politics before, but what are the actual challenges to overcome now? Is it weak political will? Is it misunderstanding the community? And then um, yeah, how do we overcome that, I guess, is, uh, is my question. Great I guess because we're all like here on a, in, our, in our free time on a, in an evening, we're all transport enthusiasts. I'm sure everyone's sort of keen to hear how we can, I guess, advance this reform process. I have a crack. Um, so, um, yeah, weak political will is part of it, but that's because there's weak community support for it. And as we've you know, seen from tonight, from the questions and whatnot, there are valid community concerns about <coughs> potential options. Now, I've been misunderstood if people think um, I'm advocating that roads should become a mechanism for private sector profiteering. That's not what I was advocating at all. Um, uh, what I was advocating was that you know roads are an important part of our transport network. There's congestion, and congestion's going to get worse. And I was advocating that there's a, a mechanism available to us that we should look at uh, to better manage that congestion. Um, now, in terms of steps, um, you know, Marion mentioned the trial uh, trials in, as as one way of building 
better understanding amongst the community about how this might affect them, what the benefits might be and what the costs might be. If you read Minister Fletcher's speech, you'll see that, and, and, and quite validly, he is very concerned about the distributional impact of this. So he's saying, look, it's not about a money grab. We don't want to get any more money from taxpayers. We just want to get it in a, a fairer, more transparent way that will improve the efficiency of our transport network. Um, but he is very worried about who the winners will be and who the losers will be. Who will pay more and who will pay less? Um, and the fairness associated with that, and can those who are disproportionately affected, um, um, you know, how can we ensure that it's, it's fair and it doesn't impose disproportionate burdens on others? And I think the inquiry that the federal government has committed to have in relation to this topic um, will provide a, a good forum for exploring some of those issues um, and working out, you know, uh, how it might work, you know, and whether, whether you know, uh, this idea really would produce a better outcome for everyone than the present system, because unless it does, you know, and that's not proven yet, um, then why would you bother, um, you know? So I think that's part of the steps, but studies, the, the, the trials and whatnot, I think is an important part of that as well. You could imagine Sydney or Melbourne, one of the state governments, um, trying it out in in one of the bigger cities and seeing what happened and perhaps with some support from the federal government. So it seems to me that it's an issue which the Commonwealth and the state have both got an interest in. So the Commonwealth's kicking off its inquiry one of these days, um, seems to be taking a while, but um, but actually the the this issue would really be owned by the state government. So um, you, you would think that the, the main interest of the Commonwealth really is in fuel excise. So that, that, I guess that's why I think it would probably be a joint effort in some sense, but perhaps with the dollars from the Commonwealth, if they can find some. The, I think um, uh, Malcolm Turnbull talked about the 30-minute city, did he not? Um, did, you, did you think that was um, possible? Do you know what I mean? I do. So the 30-minute so city, I, um, what I think um, the Prime Minister meant by this is an idea that um, people won't need to travel more than 30 minutes to get between home and work, I think is the idea, so that there'd be um, a combination of dispersed employment opportunities, um, but good ones with great transport connections. So who wouldn't want this? I think over time, there's a very um, interesting observation across time and across geography that most people, on average, are not willing to spend more than about half an hour commuting one way to work anyway. Um, but as cities grow really fast, as Sydney and Melbourne have, then um, keeping up with population growth is a real challenge. So I think it's kind of a very worthwhile aim, but it all depends on what you think you're going to do to get it. So often governments try to encourage um, employment to be 
outside of employment centres or in, in some way not where employers want to locate. They try to have inducements um, or, or encouragement for employers to set up in precincts and hubs. And when they do that, um, you know, it, it's sort of been not, not really a shining success most of the time. But transport can certainly make those distances smaller and make those times manageable. Can I see a show of hands who spends more than half an hour commuting to work? I suppose because we're in the CBD, is that that's that's what the difference is, yeah? Public transport, maybe. I don't know. Any other questions? You, sir. Oh no, sorry, I'm not in control. Hi. Sorry. <laughs> uh, John Sagar, I'm an economist based in Sydney. I was hoping to follow up on Owen's point about network operators. Uh, you know having a role in, in all this and leaving aside the profit issue, what sort of skill sets would they bring and how would that how would those skill sets be different to say what toll operators bring? Could you unpack that a little bit, David? It's a good question. So I mean look the idea for this comes from other utilities. Um, where government has decided that the best role for government is not to be the utility provider, it's to regulate the utility and allow the private sector to provide the utility service. So, you know, applying that to the road sector, um, what the sort of concept I have in mind would be, you know, the network in New South Wales, let's say, is divided into certain areas. Uh, people, uh, the network manager is given responsibility for managing that part of the network, which is a role presently performed by uh, RMS and local councils. Um, uh, they'd have a contractual right to do that and to, um, and to and to charge people for the use of that part of the network and government would regulate what could be charged, the upper and lower limits and, and whatnot to make sure um, that it was uh, appropriate and, and profits would also be regulated. So it would be about bringing um, a skill set. So at the moment, you know, large parts of the network are um, maintained by the private sector um, uh, the private sector helps transport um, make decisions in relation to where the maintenance work should be done, what sort of maintenance work should be done. Is it, you know, just patch and or spend significant money now um, uh, to avoid the need to do lots of patching later on, this sort of stuff? I'm, I'm probably not explaining this very well, Brian. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but the other skill set I see coming to this is 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 um, more transparency and 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 different drivers around those investment decisions. Um, and uh, yeah, none of us want to be paying so that someone can profit, but. Um, we need these utilities, and if the profit levels are are regulated, so that they're not making more 
been a reasonable return on uh, the funds that are invested. Um, and this occurs in other utility sectors and we all live with that. Um, Be today, as a matter of fact. The government intervening on the energy solution. Yeah, so electricity's an example and I think, look, unfortunately, we've got rising electricity prices, so that's just going to scare everyone even more. But the reason why we have rising electricity prices is because the politicians have interfered with the market and required, you know, certain amounts of renewable electricity and, I mean, it's not... <laughs> so, so, Brian, what, what part of you... Are you, are you... Go, go, go. I interrupted you. Go uh, no, it's probably best I stop there. <laughs> what, what part of the... How... What percentage is, does New South Wales tr transport spend thinking about improving existing capacity as opposed to building new stuff? Uh, well, as a proportion of the network, we're not building much. A lot of our efforts go towards managing the network. Um, and the challenge, if you like, in the in the eastern part of Sydney in particular, where the, the infrastructure is quite mature, is better use. So how can we use the network better? How can we make our roads more walkable? How can we improve public transport? Um, and how can we make the environment better? So, you know, even to the to the point of what fleet we need to, you know, we're getting diesel vehicles at the moment. We need to change that. We need to uh, work towards um, government target of net net zero emissions. So a big part of that is, is mass transit. But um, there are parts of Sydney to to, to choose Sydney um, in the western in the west, particularly the growth areas where um, there's going to be a population the size of Adelaide over the next 40 years. We need to provide both roads, but also public transport as well, um, rail and, and bus network, so that, um, I'm going back to the 30-minute city discussion, which I, I kept quiet about, but it is, it is, for me, as someone who grew up in Penrith and now lives in Balmain, it's as much about social equity and, and, and advantage, having equal advantage across our city. So I can tell you, people in Penrith do not have the same access to facilities, to education, to even healthcare, there's people in the eastern suburbs. So the 30-minute city tries to rebalance that, and certainly we've been doing a lot of work with the Greater Sydney Commission on how we can achieve that. So um, it's, it's once again, go back to the congestion interventions framework. This is a very complex issue. It's multifaceted, and um, yeah, it's a challenge. Does any city get it really right? There are 30 minutes city in the world. <laughs> Tokyo, someone said? Yeah, Hobart. Hobart. <laughs> Canberra. Um, Where, how, but, how far is it? 20 minutes. And it is, uh, you know, it was a bit flippant, but it is about size. So the bigger a city becomes, the, the longer the commutes become, particularly if you live on the periphery. And once again, about social equity. Not everyone can afford to live in the inner city. People in cities live on the outskirts because that's where they can afford to live, especially young couples and young families. Um, so we need to find the balance. But yeah, the larger the cities, the longer that commute is. So, you know, I've lived in cities around the world and, you know, you can live very close to the core and have, have a hellish journey because just the sheer number of people. Um, so it, it's a challenge. Anybody else? Well, I promise, coming, coming. Well, I'm, I sympathise with the uh, grandmother on this whole 
apparently one of the uh, great number of people who live in Balmain, but um, um, and I'm, I'm a sample of one. I used to commute to the city from Balmain, you know, I'd get on the bus and it didn't matter within reason really how long it took um, because I could do other things on the bus. Um, sorry. Uh, when, when I drive out of Balmain to go anywhere else, just my personal experience seems to be that the, the traffic in Sydney is just horrific. I had a job in the 70s where I used to drive all the time and I can't remember it being anything like it is now. So it just seemed to be a bit of a disconnect between what was being presented and, and my uh, personal experience of how Sydney is. And um, Jennifer Hewitt in your newspaper some time back wrote an article about Tokyo getting a cab there and there's, there's virtually, the traffic is very, very good there because there's the, the underground rail system is so good and I've been to Tokyo a few times, I've, I've kept the leg around most of the time and uh, so I don't know what the traffic's like but the rail system is fantastic. So, and, and also I, I just wonder about this data, I mean when you're saying was it five kilometres or seven kilometres the average commute, I mean with the, the tax system and the, the enormous transaction costs in moving within Sydney, I just find that very hard to believe that people live that close to their, their work. I mean, if they change jobs, and um, uh, you know, it's very difficult. That, you know, people are talking now about $100,000 in transaction costs to move, move house and buy and sell in Sydney. So I guess um, I just wanted to put that out there of uh, uh, what, what over 30, 40 years living in Sydney, what it's been like, to, well, my personal experience. And, and also ask those questions about the international perspective of, uh, you know, like that graph you put up, Sydney's population density was incredibly low compared to uh, even Los Angeles. And, uh, and, you know, it's got similar sort of car level, car usage levels. So is, is there a possible, you know, I, I just can't see the future in rails. Is there, is there a possibility of there being massive public transport? Because really too, that to me, that the rail system in Sydney is something basically hasn't been built much upon since the 1930s, it seems to me. Marion, do you want to talk about just, I guess averages are, can be a bit misleading. Yeah, yeah? I think that, so that it, it's true and, and I think a lot of people do um, experience this, uh, people experience the city in a very wide variety of ways and um, so um, so a few comments I'd make um, this it was the most surprising finding to me as well and we spent a lot of time checking the integrity of that result to and, and then trying to make sense of it because um, Particularly, so so a couple of comments. One thing about Sydney um, that is um, a really important part of this is the suburbs. Um, the CBD is very dense, um, so it's very dense in an economic sense. But that that economic density goes out quite far, much more so than it does in Melbourne. And the other thing about Sydney is its residential density is quite high for quite a long way. Again, much more so than Melbourne. So you do have a lot more people living in the um, in the area, in the suburbs around the CBD, but also the ones around them. So that, that really dense residential core goes out um, quite a long way. And what that means is there are a lot of people there, both living and working. Um, and I'm not sure quite how, short, how many kilometres Balmain is, but um, I, yeah, so, so it is a very, yeah, so... 
Um, so then the the result that I have focused on here is about um, people who are commuting by driving. Um, so driving, um, I think you're talking about a, a driving from Balmain but not for a work commute, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it does drive people crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, um so uh, so a couple of things so those in it um you know the inner area extends out quite a long way um and and those are typically the areas that are best served by public transport and where people can take public transport so for those CBD commutes I think they largely do much more so again than they do in Melbourne. So there's a, there's quite a few factors at play here, but the reason why people do sort of avoid taking their cars is because it is terrible if you do. And those CBD commutes, even if it's a very short distance, are quite delayed and also quite variable. But in the end, we, we had three and a half million observations in this data set. So it was a finding that, um, that when you take an average of CBD commutes across the city, that is what you know. That's a finding, really, an average of eleven percent. So that quite there is quite a high variability. So it doesn't mean, uh, but but getting up uh, much above twenty minutes extra, it's not that common. Or twenty five minutes extra, probably for the CBD commutes, it's not that common. But feel sorry for the people who have to come across the Spit Bridge, apparently. Yeah. So there. That's. Did you have something to say, gentlemen, or should we go to this other question? We probably remember the worst ones too, and and just on that last bit too about the variability. So like you know, I, uh, every day I commute to work, and I go right. Well, if I got to get there for a meeting at nine o'clock or nine thirty, well, what's the worst scenario going to be for me? Because uh, I got to get to that meeting on time, so I got to leave and uh, allow for that worst scenario. And so you know, and then I'll get there five ten minutes early most of the time. Um, I'm wasting all this time, um, uh, and so and then when people ask me, oh, what's my commute time? Oh, well, it's it's that worst case scenario, not the average. Uh, two more. One. Go ahead. Um, Chris Curtis from Curtis Associates, buyers agents, and property advisors. We spent a lot of time advising our clients on the impact of transport. Um, systems, public transport and so forth on, on the investment decision, whether you're buying your home, a commercial property, a development site and so forth. Um, so obviously this is a, an intensely interesting session. I confess to being somewhat disappointed at the premise underlying it in, in this respect. I think I, I um, uh, repeat the last questioner's sentiment and the lady in front of me. The premise seems to me to be completely inverted. Um, underlying this entire presentation is an endorsement of the internal combustion engine and the idea of the use of the motor vehicle as a mode of conveyance at the expense of so many other alternatives. We are one of the only cities in the world currently engaged in putting this sort of infrastructure in, whereas more developed and more densely populated cities in the world are actually ripping them out, South Korea, everywhere else the LA experience and so forth across the board. We are in Sydney and in Australia running counter to world's best practice. At the same time, we have other government instrumentalities and regulatory bodies promoting an agenda 
which is completely inconsistent with the use of the motor vehicle. And I, I instance, for example, the, the uh, importance being placed on urban density and master planning. So on the one hand, we have a situation here where, where we have the left hand, for example, promoting urban density to perhaps remedy that slide where we had, according to my reading of it, I'm a long distance from it, we were the least densely populated of the international cities on that pie graph. Uh, and there are government bodies trying to remedy that and rely on public transport in that solution on the one hand, whereas on the right hand, we have a 1950s solution that focuses on the internal combustion engine. That per se, as far as we are concerned, is um, an absurdity. When you then graft onto that, and I've spent actually coincidentally all day today in a series of seminars held by various bodies around town, and the unanimous view is that the advent of the autonomous vehicle and the electric vehicle is absolutely inevitable, and it's going to come quicker than all of us imagine. Nowhere in the thinking are these roads and the idea and the ideas that have been propounded here um, featured prominently. It seems to me that we are living in an ice age and the tail is wagging the dog and we are actually contradicting ourselves in our major, plan major planning initiatives. And when you look at the topography of Sydney, the intersection of uh, uh, waterways, um, the fact that we're all squished into a very narrow area between the mountains and the sea, there is a very real question topographically as to whether roads are appropriate, and that's before you start to talk about the advent of artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles. The very same state government that is pushing these roads through areas and, and causing mass devastation in areas in the inner west and so forth are the very same uh, is the very same uh, government body that is is advocating urban density. If the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, then God help us all. Right. Uh, like I say, it's probably something you need to take up with politicians rather than sort of in a, in a policy discussion. Um, and just a final question down here. Um, yeah, Ruben Welshen, uh, work for Sistra. Um, I grew up in the Netherlands and um, we talked a lot about road pricing, um, at least for the last 15 years and miserably failed. Um, road pricing and congestion pricing. Um, I was a bit surprised you said that um, most of the trips are very short, um, but uh, the the average um, extra time for travel was up about five minutes extra. Yeah, so that's on journeys to work, um, and it's across the whole of Sydney. And so then most of the short trips are taking about five minutes longer in average. Yeah, that's right. So the, the average of these car, these are car trips. So the average car trip is around 10 minutes um, in the middle of the night and 15 um, on average or a little bit under 15 in morning peak. So that, I think that's uh, about a 50% extra longer travel time. So that's, I don't think that's very little. And is, and is that all work or is that a lot of, have you differentiated between school travel as well or? So um, although that's journeys to work, everyone who's traveling at that time for any kind of reason gets caught up in it. So 
Um, so many people are traveling for work, but there's students and there's shoppers and there's people with appointments and there's um, you know, people making deliveries and there's all kinds of things that, that collectively make that up. Because, um, I mean, the, <clears throat> the conclusion and the, the mention about a livable city, and I, I do think it's the fantastic cities to live in Sydney and Melbourne, um, but I, I wonder whether transport is the best aspect of the livability of it, because um, I find that, you know, being a young dad um, with young kids, I find my kids are locked into the house. They, they, they can't play on the street where, you know, when I grew up, I played in the streets, I roamed around and I was fairly free and I could move where I wanted. But my kids cannot cycle anywhere. And they cannot even play in the streets of the neighborhoods. In fact, the average construction site has a much lower speed than the average neighborhood. So, you know, my kids, I live at the end of a cul-de-sac and my kids have to be careful not to be run over by cars. Yes, I think um, there's, there's much more to talk about, but we've run out of time, unless um, you had any specific comments about that. <coughs> so, a couple of points. Um, we, we, you know, as a few people in the audience have mentioned, we've focused very much on cars. So, a lot of the roads we're talking about that are congested, we're talking about from a vehicle perspective. So, you have to bear in mind that those roads um, have traffic signals. Those traffic signals are there to allow pedestrians to cross. So some of these roads have are very important for public transport. The, the activity that happens with public transport and people stopping and the land use being activated in those shops, um, you could argue, if you look at a certain perspective, create congestion. In fact, that's about livability. It's about people accessing shops. It's about people doing their business. It's about driving the economy as well. So congestion is not necessarily a, a negative thing. Congestion is something that just happens in a city because there's other people using. There's land use happening. There's people walking you know, across the road. There's people accessing bus stops, and that means the vehicles stop and go, and that stops other cars from going. So um, I really just do want to make the point we are just looking at cars here and congestion is not a bad thing because there's other things happening. Um, on your point about, I've got young kids as well, so I, I do, do, you know, you touched a nerve here. Um, I live in Balmain. We've got a 40 kilometer an hour zone um, and my kids can play in the street. It's one way street, it's very local, um, but I'm acutely aware too, having grown up in Penrith, there's many places in our city where that's not happening. So um, from, my perspective as someone who's responsible for road strategy, we are very much as part of our looking at making Sydney more livable about local streets. Um, that's where people live. We want to improve the amenity, but I would also say there, there we are all responsible. Um, there's only so much state government can do. There's only so much practitioners can do. Um, having lived around the world in, in many cities, and, and you've lived in the Netherlands, no doubt, um, we have a very car-dominated culture, and we have um, too many people in our city that jump in their cars, feel isolated from the rest of what's around them, and drive accordingly. Um, so I think there's a there's a whole education process and a behavioural issue that we we need to address as a culture. So that's a long journey, um, but I think discussions like this very much help with that discussion and that journey. 
please uh, join with me thanking our guests. And um, I want to thank you very much for coming and also the New South Wales State Library for having us. Um, I'm sure the, the experts will take more questions if you've got them. I've just dumped them in it. <laughs> Thanks very much. Bratton Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate. Grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.